Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, assault, suicide, and capital punishment that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On a brisk November morning in 1849, 30,000 Londoners gathered in the streets, singing and dancing. Grandstands had been erected for the commoners and rooftops rented out by the elite. An air of celebration encompassed both rich and poor alike. But this wasn't a party. It was an execution. At 9 o'clock, the horsemonger Lane Jail prison's bells tolled. A hush fell over the crowd, and all the gathered waited with bated breath. A moment later, the prison doors opened, and out came the convicted. 30-year-old Frederick Manning exited first. He was nervous and agitated, looking anywhere but at the hangman's noose. As 28-year-old Marie Manning stepped out, the crowd collectively leaned in to catch sight of her. Marie ignored them, her eyes trained on the gallows ahead. As the jailers led her forward, she kept her head held high. Marie would show no fear, even if it was the last thing she ever did. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. Last week, we explored how Marie Manning became a lady-in-waiting to London nobility, but her greed motivated her to murder her lover so she could steal his money. This week, we'll cover how Marie carried out the killing. Then we'll follow her escape across Europe, leading up to her eventual capture and trial. On August 9, 1849, 28-year-old Marie Manning anxiously waited for her lover, 50-year-old Patrick O'Connor, to arrive for dinner. She had her gun ready. And if that failed, her husband, 30-year-old Frederick Manning, had a crowbar. At 5 o'clock, the doorbell rang. Marie rushed over to answer it, all the while praying that O'Connor had come alone. As she opened the door, a smile spread across her face. O'Connor had come by himself this time, just as she'd asked him to. She welcomed him inside and directed him to wash up in the back kitchen. It was a perfectly reasonable request. It was sweltering outside, so O'Connor could certainly use a freshening up before dinner. Little did he know, 
Marie was right behind him, and as O'Connor entered the back kitchen, she lifted her gun, pointed it at the back of his head, and fired. O'Connor's body crumpled to the floor. Loath to remain in the kitchen with O'Connor's prone body, Marie ran upstairs and told her husband what had just transpired. Unable to believe that his wife had done the deed, Manning grabbed a crowbar and ran downstairs to see for himself. Once there, he found O'Connor lying on the ground, a gunshot wound to the head. Despite his injuries, however, O'Connor was still breathing, and Manning knew exactly what he had to do. Marie watched as her husband raised the crowbar high and bashed O'Connor's head with it. Unsatisfied, Manning swung 16 more times before he was finally convinced O'Connor was dead. Throughout the gruesome attack, Marie did nothing to stop him. By this point, she cared more about O'Connor's money than his life. It didn't matter to her if the situation had become more violent than intended, so long as she got what she wanted. Before we continue with Marie Manning's psychology, please note I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Psychologists Patrick Musel and Johannes Huig found that greedy individuals lack an ability to adjust their behavior based on their environment. They simply remain motivated by their greed. They found that greedy people strive to obtain desired goods at all costs. Like Marie, the participants in their study displayed selfish and reckless behavior that came at the expense of others. Marie's greediness pushed her to the extreme. She no doubt could have had some money if she'd just asked O'Connor for it. She was his mistress and he cared for her. But Marie didn't want some money. She wanted all his money. So she did the unthinkable. After ensuring that O'Connor was dead, Marie and Manning stripped him of his clothes. Then they stuffed him into a pre-dug grave and poured a bushel of quicklime over him. Finally, they filled the grave and relaid the floor. It looked almost as good as new. Once they'd concluded their macabre task, Marie left Minver Place and went to O'Connor's lodgings. There, she told his landlady, Anne Arms, that she was worried because O'Connor hadn't shown up for dinner. She wanted to wait for him in his room. Marie barely had to convince the landlady. Prior to his death, O'Connor had instructed Miss Arms to let Marie into his room, even if he wasn't there. So, on receiving the go-ahead, Marie trooped up to O'Connor's quarters. Once upstairs, she quickly stole all of his stocks and railway shares. Miss Arms was none the wiser as she bid Marie goodbye. However, not long after returning to Minver Place with O'Connor's stocks and shares in hand, Marie realized she hadn't gotten everything. Despite this, she decided that it would be too suspicious to return a second time on the same night. So she patiently waited for the following evening. When it finally came, Marie returned to O'Connor's lodgings. She feigned surprise when Ms. Arms stated that she still hadn't seen her tenant. After bypassing the landlady, Marie went to O'Connor's room supposedly to wait for him once again. 
Instead, she ransacked the place, making sure she didn't forget anything this time around. At the conclusion of her second robbery, Marie stopped pretending to call on O'Connor. She had everything she needed and saw no need to maintain the ruse. On Sunday, August 12th, O'Connor's workmates finally reported him missing. They told the authorities he hadn't shown up for three days of work. They also relayed that two men at the docks called Graham and Keating had seen him on his way to the Mannings on the evening of August 9th. With that clue in hand, the police showed up at Minver Place, but 28-year-old Marie claimed O'Connor had never shown up for dinner on the 9th. The police had no reason to doubt her, so they let her be. However, O'Connor's cousin, William Flynn, wasn't so easily put off. He insisted that the police question her again, this time with him present. Seeing no harm in granting his request, the police obliged. The following day, they revisited Minver Place. Again, Marie stuck to her story, but she inadvertently let slip a curious statement. In the middle of the interrogation, she suddenly said, Poor O'Connor, he was the best friend I had in London. And the police found that odd. Why was she already speaking of O'Connor in the past tense? What exactly did she know? Unfortunately for them, after that telling slip, Marie went back to feigning complete ignorance. With only an ounce of suspicion and nothing else to point to, the police left for the day. They told Marie, however, that they would call on her again, soon. Marie nodded and smiled in response, waving them goodbye. Then once they were gone, she shut the door and started to pack. She had no intention of being in residence should they ever return. With frenetic motion, Marie gathered everything she needed into her trunks. She already had a plan forming in her mind. She just needed to execute it. After she was done packing up her things, she called for a cab and asked the driver to take her to London Bridge Station. But once there, she had the cab driver wait for her. She'd be back in a moment. Then she ran into the station and dropped some of her luggage off with the porter. On each suitcase, Marie affixed a label that read, Mrs. Smith, passenger to Paris. She believed that would be enough to send the police off on a wild goose chase. With part one of her plan executed, Marie got back into the cab and demanded to be driven to Euston Square Station. The driver thought it was odd to drop off luggage at one station, only to go to another. Nevertheless, he did as she asked. Once the cab pulled up outside Euston Square, Marie climbed out and went straight to the ticket counter. There, she purchased a first-class ticket to Edinburgh under the name Mrs. Smith. Then, dispatching the cab, she spent the night in a hotel near the station. Finally, at 6.15 a.m. the next morning, 28-year-old Marie boarded the train for Scotland. As Marie rode the train to Edinburgh, the police returned to number three Minver Place. When they knocked, they found no one home. 
After peering through the window, they discovered that the place was cleared out. Apart from the furniture, the apartment boasted no other personal effects. A local man, Mr. Bainbridge, arrived as the police were scouring the place. He informed them that Manning had sold him the furniture within. He was there to pick up what he was owed. Upon being questioned about Manning's current whereabouts, Mr. Bainbridge told the police that Manning had stayed with him over the weekend. However, he said, the other man had left the day prior. With that, the police realized that both Mannings had disappeared right under their nose. This sudden flight made the couple look exceptionally guilty. But without a body, the police still weren't sure exactly what had happened. As far as they knew, the Mannings might not have murdered O'Connor. Further, O'Connor might not even be dead. He could just as easily have fled the city himself. However, that theory soon flew out the window. On August 17th, the police returned to search Number 3 Minver Place for the fourth time. They were positive they had missed something during their previous inspections. Sure enough, as they examined the back kitchen, they noticed it was unusually clean in comparison to the rest of the house. Curious, they inspected it further. It wasn't long before one police officer noticed a patch of damp mortar. He picked at it with his pocket knife, causing the binding to come up easily. So he kept digging. Then he enlisted his fellow officer, and together the two pulled back the flagstone and dug deeper until they hit something. With much curiosity, the officers pulled the thing out and took a look. It was a human toe. Soon after, they discovered the rest of the body. It was almost unrecognizable, the quicklime having made fast work of its features. In fact, after having been buried for a whole week, the body would have been near impossible for the medical examiner to identify, if not for the corpse's teeth or rather, its lack of teeth. In life, O'Connor had worn a set of falsies. As a result, the police were even more certain they had their murder victim upon noticing that the body also had no teeth. After this discovery, they kicked their investigation into high gear. Their main objective? Find both Mannings as soon as possible. Up next, the police chase Marie across Europe. And now, back to the story. On August 9, 1849, 28-year-old Marie Manning and her husband, 30-year-old Frederick Manning, murdered 50-year-old Patrick O'Connor in cold blood. After the murder, the Mannings fled, each going their separate ways. On August 17th, London police uncovered O'Connor's buried body in the Mannings' house. The discovery reinvigorated their desire to track both Mannings down as soon as possible. Unaware of the developments back home, Marie settled into her lodgings in Edinburgh, Scotland. Considering she'd just committed a murder, she could have laid low there, but that just wasn't Marie's style. While the police dug up O'Connor's body, she sought out Edinburgh stockbrokers. 
she wanted to sell off the stocks and railway shares she'd stolen from O'Connor as soon as possible. Marie wasn't a patient woman, after all, and when it came to securing her new windfall, she was even less willing to wait. She just couldn't help herself. This aligns with the predominant research on self-control and crime conducted by criminologists Michael Godfredson and Travis Hershey. They found that most crimes have immediate benefits and delayed consequences. It stands to reason that criminals are often people who tend to focus on the assumed benefits over the potential costs. Marie sought out instant gratification. She wanted to cash in O'Connor's shares now. She didn't worry about the possible consequences of her actions. Two stockbrokers, Hewson and Dobson, were more than happy to help. To them, Marie seemed like a respectable woman. She was well-dressed and well-traveled. In addition, she told them all kinds of stories about her adventures around Edinburgh. Adding to her guise of respectability, Marie claimed her husband, Mr. Smith, would be joining her soon. But everything she said was a lie. She'd only been in Edinburgh for two days at this point, and her husband, Manning, had no idea where she was. She had slipped away without him, taking the last 70 pounds of their mutual savings with her. The brokers knew none of this, of course. The only piece of Marie's story that gave them pause was when she claimed that her father lived in Glasgow. This was confusing because Marie didn't speak with a Scottish accent. She spoke with a French one. Still, they didn't think much of it, so they agreed to help her trade her stocks on the London market. With that confirmation, Marie left, leaving her Mrs. Smith alias along with the very real address of where she was staying. In the harsh light of day, Marie's singular act of honesty must have seemed like a massive mistake, because shortly after waking up, she returned to the brokers. There, Marie told the stockbroker, Dobson, that she had decided to go on an impromptu trip. For that reason, she needed him to return her deposit. Dobson happily obliged. That wasn't all Marie had come back to collect, however. She also asked for the note Dobson had made of her name and address. Marie had realized that leaving her real address with him was a dangerous liability. Unfortunately, Dobson said he couldn't find it. Since Marie didn't want to bring too much attention to herself, she took his word and left without causing more of a fuss. All she could do was hope she wasn't leaving a paper trail that would lead directly back to her. Meanwhile in London, the search for the Mannings intensified. The Home Secretary went so far as to announce a 100-pound reward for the apprehension of the murderous pair. That's almost 16,000 US dollars today. He also offered a royal pardon to any accomplice who hadn't actually committed the murder. This impressive reward sent a frenzy through the press, and they reported on every aspect of the case. Some threw around wild speculations, others tried to stick to the cold, hard facts. Regardless of the specific approach, every paper reported on what was becoming popularly known as the Bermondsey Horror. Further, in this flurry of activity, the journalists began considering themselves amateur detectives. 
Everybody had their own theory of where the Mannings were. After a flyer for the Victoria ship was found in the Mannings' home, one journalist was sure Marie and Manning were setting sail for New York. The police had thought little of the flyer at the time, but the reporter set out to investigate. He went onto the ship just before it was due to set sail. Once on board, he found luggage therein that was labeled as the property of Manning. As a result, police officers chased after the Victoria in another boat, catching up to her in the early morning hours. Then they boarded the ship and searched for the Mannings. They were disappointed to find that the luggage belonged to an American woman and her daughter on board, who just happened to share the same last name. The police also followed up on another set of luggage they discovered in the course of their investigation. This luggage was, of course, the set marked for Paris that Marie had left at London Bridge Station as a diversionary tactic. Unsure whether the bags constituted a real lead or not, the police sent a single officer to Paris to search for Marie. But Marie was in Edinburgh, so he found nothing. The combination of the Victoria fiasco and the Paris dead end didn't look good for the cops. Fortunately, a new piece of technology would prove useful, the electronic telegraph. London police circulated the news of O'Connor's missing stocks. They telegraphed any foreign police forces that they thought might encounter the Mannings. Because of the telegraph's speed of transmission, news of the stolen stocks reached brokers Hewson and Dobson the morning after Marie's second visit. On reading the missive, the two couldn't help but connect the dots between the so-called Mrs. Smith and the startling information from London. Dobson searched one more time for the note he had made of the foreign lady's name and address. This time, he found it. So he raced off to inform the police. Dobson described his encounter with Marie to the Edinburgh Police Superintendent, Richard Moxie. After taking in the news, the two set off for the address Marie had provided. When they arrived, the landlady, Mrs. Hewart, confirmed that a Mrs. Smith was indeed staying with her. Then she brought the two men up to Marie's room. If Marie was startled by the appearance of the police officer, she didn't show it. As she sat there, Moxie asked Dobson if Marie was the Mrs. Smith he had encountered. Dobson said he was sure of it. Then Marie stood silent as Moxie informed her of the charges against her. Though she hadn't yet heard that the London police had found O'Connor's body, Marie didn't react to the news. Instead, she remained resolute and quiet as Moxie searched through her belongings. She even poured herself a glass of wine as she waited. Marie was not going to be rattled by this Scottish officer, or perhaps she was simply resigned to her fate. When Moxie found stolen shares, stocks, and other valuables of O'Connor's amongst Marie's things, it became undeniable. They had their woman. News of Marie's capture traveled fast across the telegraph wires, a source of mass excitement in both London and Edinburgh. 
As a result, Marie became an infamous icon in the newspapers. In the first account of her after her arrest, reporters depicted her wearing a black satin dress. This look would become her signature. All across London, citizens waited anxiously for the woman in the black satin dress. They longed for Marie to be brought back to the city for her trial. On the 24th of August, exactly 15 days after the murder, they got what they'd been hungry for. Superintendent Moxie personally escorted 28-year-old Marie back to England. Once he arrived in London, Moxie took her to the Suffolk police station. There, his fellow cops immediately assailed Marie with questions. But Marie Manning refused to break under the pressure, no matter the evidence against her. She looked the officers straight in the eye and coolly asserted, I know nothing. Up next, Marie stands trial in one of the most publicized cases of the Victorian era. And now, back to the story. In August of 1849, 28-year-old Marie Manning fled to Scotland after murdering her lover, 50-year-old Patrick O'Connor. There, she tried to sell the stocks and railway shares she'd stolen from him. When the stockbrokers suspected she was the missing Marie Manning, they turned her in to the authorities. On August 24th, Marie was apprehended and charged with murder. Surprisingly, Marie's husband, 30-year-old Frederick Manning, had so far managed to evade capture. While Marie had gone to Scotland, Manning had fled to the Channel Island of Jersey. Like Marie, he could have laid low, but his vices got the better of him. Instead of greed being his downfall, however, Manning's particular sin was indiscretion. He couldn't seem to hold his tongue, attracting exactly the kind of attention he should have been avoiding. He frequented the local pub, drinking too much gin and regaling the bar with boasts of an entirely spurious nature. As Albert Borowitz wrote in The Woman Who Murdered Black Satin, it was almost as though, consumed with guilt for his horrendous crime, Manning was subconsciously wanting to be found. When the cops came knocking, Manning didn't answer, so they stormed the cottage instead. Upon gaining entry, they found him drunk in his upstairs bedroom. Once the authorities grabbed him, the first thing Manning asked was, is the wretch taken? When they told him they had indeed arrested Marie, Manning responded, thank God, I'm glad of it. That will save my life. She is the guilty party. I am as innocent as a lamb. The authorities extradited Manning back to London. There, he joined Marie in jail, both locked away in their respective cells. As her court date drew nearer, Marie asked the guards often about the newspapers. She wanted to know what people were saying about her. One day after this same request, a guard finally informed her that her husband had accused her of the murder. At that, Marie shouted, the villain, it was him that did it, not me. But aside from that one outburst, Marie remained her stoic self within the jailhouse walls. 
Many thought she was more concerned with her looks than with her impending arraignment. Marie's actions seemed to confirm this opinion. She went to great lengths to acquire her old clothes and even attempted to make new ones while she awaited the hearing. And then on October 25th and 26th, Marie and Frederick Manning stood trial at the Old Bailey Courthouse in London. It was a packed room. In fact, the sheriff's office was selling tickets to the popular proceedings. On the day of, everyone who was anyone was there. Charles Dickens was even in attendance. Finally, it was time for the show to begin. Manning entered the courtroom first, nervous as always. Marie followed, avoiding her husband's gaze. She wore her signature black satin dress and took her place next to her counsel. She stood still as a statue. In opening, the Crown charged Manning with the murder of Patrick O'Connor. Then they charged Marie with aiding and abetting. Marie's lesser charge was due to sexism and British tradition. In England, she was viewed as an English wife. Thus, it seemed implausible to her accusers that she would have done anything without her husband's consent. It can also be hard for juries to see women as violent offenders. In a 1998 study conducted by the Bureau of Justice, 52% of women were acquitted or found not guilty, compared to 38% of men. And only 3% of all women accused of violent felonies were given a guilty verdict. Marie may have had a lesser charge because of her status, but her solicitor wanted to do one better. He wanted a separate trial for her entirely. Manning blamed Marie for murdering O'Connor, and his statements to police would be read aloud to the jury. However, if Marie's lawyer could get her a separate trial, then the incriminating statements would be inadmissible. To bring about this result, her lawyer cited a 1355 statute. The law declared that in any case involving both an English citizen and a foreigner, the foreigner was to be given a separate trial with a mixed jury. That mixed jury had to include half Englishmen and half foreigners. However, the judge overruled Marie's defense. He stated that there was a new law enacted only a year prior. This law declared that any foreigner who married an English citizen would become an English citizen herself. For the entirety of Marie and Manning's marriage, she had been disappointed, betrayed, and wronged by her husband. It seemed that pattern would hold up during the trial, too. If Marie had been Manning's mistress instead of his wife, she would have gotten her own trial. She could have been charged as only an accessory after the fact. But this was not the case. Since she was Manning's wife, she would either be found guilty of the murder or not guilty right alongside him. With that point squared away, the trial continued with both Mannings tried at the same time. To prove Marie's complicity in O'Connor's murder, the prosecution first set out to prove that she was having an affair with him. Then they made it clear that this affair gave her both knowledge of his property and free access to his lodgings. Thus, they argued that all Marie needed to steal the money was the key O'Connor kept on a ring in his pocket. 
All she needed to do to access that ring was kill O'Connor. Despite this Marie-focused argument, the prosecutor didn't let Manning off the hook. He asserted that while Marie might have concocted the plan and pulled the trigger, Manning wasn't innocent. On the contrary, he'd beat a wounded O'Connor with a crowbar. For obvious reasons, Manning's defense took a different approach. They placed the blame solely on Marie. They claimed that she had manipulated Manning by asking him to purchase the quicklime and crowbar under false pretenses. Next, they asserted that she had planned and performed the murder completely on her own. As proof, they pointed to the fact that Marie had fled the country without her husband in the aftermath. This, they claimed, demonstrated there was no partnership or teamwork in existence between the two. Finally, they proved that Manning didn't have a penny of O'Connor's money. This showed Marie had committed the murder by herself and reaped its rewards the same way. After they were done, Marie certainly looked guilty. But then her defense lawyers got to work. They urged the jury to remember Marie's gender. She was a woman, after all. And did they really believe that a woman was capable of such a heinous crime? Further, while they didn't deny Marie's affair with O'Connor, they pointed to it as a reason why she wouldn't have killed him. According to their argument, O'Connor would have given Marie anything she wanted. Manning may have mistreated his wife, but there was never any evidence that O'Connor had mistreated Marie. Marie's defense then attempted to twist the timeline of the night in such a way that would prove she had left Minver Place before O'Connor ever arrived. In their version of events, Marie truly was worried about O'Connor's whereabouts that evening. They said it was Manning who had committed the crime and he had done it all on his own. Marie only fled for Scotland because she feared for her own life. To explain the railway shares in her possession, they claimed that O'Connor had bought them for her. Marie was simply taking that which belonged to her. She knew she would need the shares to fund her escape from her husband. Ultimately, it was a nice story, but an unlikely one. And after just an hour of deliberation, the jury returned with their verdict. Marie and Frederick Manning were both found guilty of murder. After the verdict, Marie stood up to make a statement for herself. It was the first time she'd spoken in the trial. In her remarks, she accused her husband, the prosecutors, and the judge of all being against her. Then she swore to her innocence, but it was too late. The judge sentenced both Marie and Frederick Manning to be executed by hanging. Upon hearing what was to be her punishment, all of Marie's resolve dissipated. She swore, she insulted England, she screamed, damnation seize you all. It was a violent outburst unlike any she had shown beforehand. To stem her outpourings of rage, the guards handcuffed her and dragged her out. As the prison bars closed on Marie's cell, she started to weep. She wasn't crying for Manning or O'Connor, rather she wept for herself. 
Throughout her life, Marie's actions indicated a strong, self-centered tendency. She used people and stole from them whenever it benefited her. She had little regard for those she hurt along the way. And now it was that same self-centeredness that prompted her to weep in her jail cell. For the first time, she cared because it was herself who she had hurt. Marie's defense team tried to appeal the court's decision, but the prosecution thwarted every attempt. Soon, the judge set a date for the execution. In the week leading up to the hanging, the prison chaplain tried many times to convince Marie to repent for what she had done. All she had to do was give a full confession and show remorse, but Marie refused. She maintained that she was innocent and had nothing to tell. Then, on the Sunday before the execution, Marie attempted suicide. As her guards rested, she tried to strangle herself. Before she could succeed, however, her guards woke up and stopped her. From then on, they watched over Marie every moment. Two days later, on Tuesday, November 13, 1849, the Horsemonger Lane Jail prison bells tolled. All through the streets, a crowd of 30,000 fell hushed. They'd been dancing, singing, and chanting all morning to keep themselves entertained. But now, the event they had all been waiting for was finally here. Marie and Frederick Manning walked out of the prison, escorted by guards. Slowly, they made their way toward the executioner's platform. Marie was as resolute as ever. She wore her signature black satin dress, and she kept her head held high. Even as the executioner hung the noose around her neck, Marie never wavered. She stood as she had in the courtroom, still as a statue. In his final moments, Manning reached a handout to his wife. Marie took it, giving it a slight squeeze, and then the executioner dropped the scaffold. Marie and Frederick Manning fell. They died almost instantly. That was not the end of Marie Manning's legacy. The crowd of Londoners at the Mannings' execution was so large that it became a mob. Fights broke out. A man fractured his leg. People trampled over a fallen woman as they tried to get out of the barricades. As a result of this chaos, the scene of the mob ultimately appalled onlookers more than the actual execution. Charles Dickens, who had watched the proceedings from a rooftop, wrote a letter afterward to the Times newspaper. He argued that subsequent hangings should be held privately. According to Dickens, the mob outside the Manning's execution had been worse than anything imaginable. Marie's execution became the catalyst for a serious debate over the next 19 years, until finally, in 1868, public hangings were outlawed in England. Many credit that to Marie Manning, the woman in black satin. After a lifetime of self-service, finally in death, she served someone else's needs.
Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Marie Manning, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Woman Who Murdered Black Satin by Albert Borowitz extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson.